0: hope you brought your bibles with you today i'm going to share with you something that didn't come out of the interview process and uh, the topic of of the title of the sermon today is above all we're going to spend our time together in psalm chapter 8 But something that didn't come out of the interview process that was not important at all is that I am a terrible fisherman, and I come from a family of terrible fishermen. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that we don't like to fish. I've fished in Canada, fished in the Bahamas, have fished in Alaska, had some amazing experiences. Florida, I can keep going. But uh, just to be honest, we probably don't have the patience for it, but... There was a day when I was about 19 years old, we're in the Boundary Waters of Canada, my whole family was there, and I was, uh, had tried the fishing thing, didn't do too well, so I was tooling around on a jet ski with my little brother, and I noticed that my dad, who was on our little rental boat, had his, his reel, a rod, was bending over a lot. He was pulling in fish left and right, and so we tied our boat, uh, the jet ski, up to the back of this little rental boat, and, and watch dad pull these fish in left and right. Now, I, I said to my dad as he was doing it, dad, did you notice that sound off in the distance? And he said, oh no, no, that's, that's not anything. That's, there's an airport close by. I'm sure there's an airport close by. And then we could really tell that it was the sound of thunder. Now, we're on an aluminum boat on a freshwater lake and we hear the thunder which then it would be like god had pulled the curtains above us it turned pitch black and it was in the morning and then the rain fell and it wasn't just rain it was a torrential rainstorm anyone relate have you ever been through this before and then the lightning started to hit and i can remember vividly the lightning hitting on the ground and then we saw it start to hit in the water now I am not exaggerating when I tell you what I chose to do is that I chose to huddle with my little brother in the front of the boat because we were convinced we were going to die. Now, have any of you ever felt like you were going to die? Any of you? A few of you can relate to this. I was so convinced that we were going to die that we were praying in the front and we were singing Amazing Grace together in each other's arms. This is how intensive a moment this was. My dad's got that thing floored. We actually made it to the the dock and we didn't even tie up the boat when we made it to the dock. It was such an intense moment. My mom was on the shore. She's crying and we just run inside. And, And there's just this moment where with everything that we had, we could not ignore the reality of God's creation that was around us. Yes, we were afraid we were going to die. But I'm guessing that for King David, when that little shepherd boy that had had the privilege of sitting and tending the flocks as a baby, looked up into the heavens. And can you even imagine in Israel when David was tending those sheep, what he saw in the sky, Zero light pollution, right? So he didn't just see the first layer of stars or like the star that we have in Cleveland, right? He didn't see just the first layer of stars, but he saw the second and the third layers of stars. And, and in that awe, in that reality of how big God was, what he did was exactly that, what I did when I felt in awe of God's creation, nothing but tiny and small. And I could do nothing in that moment but to respond to the God of all creation. Today we're going to study in God's Word a beautiful passage of Scripture. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm chapter 8. This Psalm is beautiful on so many levels. One of them, Psalm chapter 8, is quoted two times in the New Testament. And in both contexts, it has some level of, have you not heard? Haven't you read? Isn't there there's something that's significant for us to pay attention to? And and David, as the great poet of scripture, decides to pen these words, and it is a poem to be reckoned with. But what it does, if you pay attention with me this morning, is that we're going to see that David responded to the grandeur of God. He responded to the goodness of God, and in his case, he's looking at the heavens and he's saying that God is so big, so strong, so mighty And the recognition that as a man that we are small but privileged to be in his context. If you have your Bibles at Psalm chapter 8, I'm going to read from the NIV. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. You have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. And the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the wild, that swim the paths of the seas, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Brothers and sisters, God's word declares something to us in this psalm that is so beautiful and yet so simple that creation demands a response, that as believers in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, or even just as human beings in this creation, we are people that can do nothing but to respond to the grandeur of God. It's, can you imagine for a minute, just think about the atheists for a second, Can you imagine for a minute how much faith, when you look around at creation, it would take to believe that this all happened by chance, that there's no God, that this was an accident? Can you imagine how difficult that would be in the light of the glory of God's creation? It would be next to impossible, wouldn't it? It'd take a tremendous amount of faith. I love the story of the the parents that were atheists, their son who said to his mom and dad, mom and dad, do you think God knows that we don't believe he exists? (laughs) (laughs) I, I think, I think that there's a part of this that, that we have to accept that God's creation is all around us and it demands a response from us. But, but not only that, Christ follower, if you're in the room And if you've chosen to see the grandeur of God around you, and yet you've chosen to live in fear and in worry, it has been described as temporary atheism. That there's a part of us that stands back and says, maybe God can't handle this. And I want to suggest to you this morning three points, the first of which is God's glory is on display for all to admire. This flows directly out of verses 1 and 3 and 9. It's funny that, that David declares the same thing. It's so important that he starts it and he ends this psalm with this, this declaration of who the Lord is. In your text, it probably says LORD in all caps, and then it says LORD with a capital L. And this description, when he says, our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth, he's saying two different things about his God. The first word for Lord that's all caps is the word Yahweh. We sang it in the song just a few minutes ago. He's the covenant keeping God of Israel. We know him, that's our God. And then he goes on to say, our Lord. And then that word in Hebrew is Adonai. This is the God of the universe, that his name is great in all creation. He is worthy to be worshiped. He is majestic. We could use the word awesome. Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name and all of the earth. And then in verse three, he uses this, this description of God and his handiwork. And he, he describes it like the artisan. That, that does it. in scripture, when we see the arm of God, we see the strength of God. But here we see the handiwork of God. And we see his intimate care for his creation, that he places it just right, that he set the stars in place. In verse three, he says that when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Now, confession time. Do any of you have to have everything just so in your house? Like if I visited your home, like the soap would be, who's shaking, do you want to point at who does that in your family, if a few of you know somebody? That's who it is. To, to picture your creator God, who David stands in awe of, and he says that he places every star. You, you think of the palette of the sky in general, and you think about the fact that it's always changing, that it's always different, that there's always something new to admire, it is so encouraging for me to think of the handiwork of God, the work of his fingers. And you consider the solar system, the Hubble telescope takes, takes pictures and we recognize we have no idea how big it is, right? That it's so grand that Thomas Dick, the um, a scientist, put it this way. He says, a survey of the solar system, this is the understatement of the world. A survey of the solar system has a tendency to moderate the pride of man. It kind of makes us feel small, doesn't it? It, it? it puts us a little bit back in our place. And I, I think of another image later. David talks about the fish in the sea, and I love to get my head underwater in the ocean, and I love to see God's. I worship. I can I can worship with a snorkel on. I don't know if anybody else can. Uh, Warren Wearsby calls worship a, a response to God. And when I when I look, at, I think what 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 takes my my breath away. When I, when I see God's creation in this way, is that it doesn't matter if anybody notices it at all, right? It's just happening. It's just life, and it's beautiful. And God has placed it intimately in his creation. You think of an even more intimate way that he works in his creation is the human body, when he knits our bodies, knit our bodies together in our mother's womb. That the God of the universe, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, knows the numbers of the hairs on your head, that he cares about you with such an intimate in such an intimate way that ought to make us stand back and to respond, right? It ought to, to make us say, Who am I? It ought to make us stand back and be in shock. And you know, Isaiah chapter 6 when When the prophet stands before the Lord and he sees him in his glory, the first words that come out of his lips is, woe is me. (laughs) It should do nothing but put us in that shock and awe place in our lives. Creation demands a response. But when I consider the antithesis of ignoring, it is so significant for me to accept. Can Can you imagine what it would have been like, back to my story on the boat. If, I, if my, my, my brothers and I, we just decided that we, uh, while we're out there in that storm and the lightning bolts are hitting all around us, that, that we're going to just hang out there. We'd packed a lunch, so we're just going to eat a soggy sandwich while we're out there as the lightning bolts are hitting. Uh, can, you, can you imagine for a minute that we decided to jump back on the jet ski and told, that we we're just going to ignore what God was doing around us? It would be absolutely ludicrous. But here we see God even in his wisdom, as he inspired David to write these words, he says, when I consider your heavens and when I make space, when I hit the mute button of my life and I just take time to watch and observe, when I hit the pause button of my life and I stand back and respond to God's creation and its grandness, that God himself is mindful of you and I. When I'm mindful of him, I find myself sitting at his feet and recognizing that he is mindful of me. Brothers and sisters, the second point this morning that I think is very important is that there is no excuse for ignoring God. There's just, there's just not an excuse. It's too, too loud around us. It's too real around us. It, it's so significant that, that even our children understand this truth. And it's so beautiful to see. We, we know that the Lord talks about the, the words of children, that it can declare the praises of our God, that we ought to have faith like a child. But it says this in verse two, and I think this is a beautiful sentence. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold. You have ordained a place of strength that nothing can stand against it, even your greatest enemies. It's, it's tremendous to see these words, your enemies, to silence the foe, to silence the avenger. You think of an avenger, and it is someone who repays evil for evil, the very opposite of the command and character of God. I can't help but imagine for a second that when King David wrote these words as a man, that there was a time in his mind that he remembered silencing a foe. Can you picture Goliath in his bigness declaring to Israel, where's your God? Who's gonna face me? Him bellowing out with his lungs the complete antithesis of what David would choose to declare to him. At the point that God would choose to knock Goliath down, David was not focused in on his sling and his skill. But these are the words that David used, recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45. Before he would kill Goliath, he said, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. He came in awe of a big God and he silenced the enemy of God. This very passage is quoted in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 21, verse 15. And Matthew 21, verse 15 is a beautiful description of how this passage moves from being an Old Testament psalm that's beautiful and helpful and powerful. And it says this, he says, he says these wonderful things that God did, and the children shouting in the temple courts after Jesus had cleansed the temple, that that he had overturned the tables of the money changers. And it says this, it says, "'Hosanna to the Son of David.'" And then the Pharisees and the Sadducees were indignant. "'Do you hear what these children are saying about you, Jesus?' The religious leaders asked him. Jesus said, "'Yes. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord?' have called forth your praise. The word that they were declaring was this word, Hosanna. One of the great words in God's God's story of salvation for people. Because at the beginning, when this was first described in the book of Psalms, it was used just one time. And it was a word that meant, Hosanna. This is the same word that you would say if you were on a diving board. You didn't know how to swim, and I pushed you off into the deep end. You'd say, help, save me. And then later on in the New Testament, when it's used here and also during the triumphal entry of the Lord, this word means our Savior has come. It's a beautiful image. And what we see here is that even though we've fallen short of the glory of God, that the very God of the universe has chosen to seek and to save that which was lost Romans 1, 18 echoes this truth in a way that's haunting in some ways. We won't read the whole passage, but I want to read this verse out of the middle of it. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. David is glorifying God. He's given thanks to him. And he's saying that God's creation is all around me. I can do nothing but to respond. You know, this weekend is uncomfortable for me at some level because it's focusing in on Allie and I. And I, I think it's fascinating. We've been, as we even talk about the future of hope, we've been praying for hope for a long time. We continue to pray for Hope Church. One of the things that I'm uncomfortable with is we're even talking about the future. Do you remember what the Lord says to us about saying we're gonna do something next week or even tomorrow? He says that we ought to just lay it at his feet and say, your will be done. Your will be done, Lord, that, that we're gonna do this thing. And I I, I wanna to say to you, way more important than than any evaluation of of Allie or, or myself is the, is the question for you. And the question is, in the light of Hosanna, the one who created the universe, that loves you individually, personally, that knows your name, that, that the question for you is, have you chosen to receive him in your life? John 1, 12 puts it this way. He says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That, that phrase is so beautiful, and it's so much more important than anything else happening this weekend in your own life. I had a friend, where I was in a Christian club, public high school, and, and I had this friend who, um, maybe some of you have this um, on your Bibles, but she had a Bible in that place where it has your name on it. Instead of um, her name written on it, I looked over her shoulder and I saw it said, daughter of the king, is what it said. And it it struck me at that moment that she understood what it means to be a child of God, that that's what it means, that that's my identity. And here, when we stand back in front of the God who loves you, who has given us no more excuses as we're surrounded by the reality of his creation, his handiwork is all around us, that God has chosen in his infinite wisdom to choose to take you and I and to place us as humans in a place of great honor. We have a special place in God's creation, and it's a unique one. We see this in verses three through eight, that God is way above all of his creation. He says this, he says, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels. You've crowned them with glory and honor. You've made them rulers over the works of your hands, You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds of the sea, the sky, the fish of the sea, and all of them swim that swim in the paths of the sea. It is interesting that he hearkens back to Genesis 2 and uses many of the same words that we'd see recorded in Genesis 2 talking about God's place for man, the authority that he's given us even before the fall, what we had. And, and it, to describe this, I wanted to use a whiteboard and try to draw it out and realize there just wouldn't be enough space. What, what he's saying that is, if, if you can imagine that this side of the room represents the bigness of God and that what he's describing about man being a little lower than the angels is that there's the bigness of God, and then there's the, the creation of the angel, and then there's the the job that he's given us as mankind, that we've been given glory and honor, and that there's the reality of creation. That it's in reference to him, the bigness is so big, and yet he's chosen to give you and I a special place. In response to the Elohim, the messengers that are in recorded in this book of Psalm, we see that God has made us lower than the angels. In Hebrews chapter four, this is, or chapter two, verse nine, this very phrase is quoted. And the author of Hebrews, as he writes it, he says this in such a way that is so profound and it ties it directly to what it meant for Jesus to condescend in creation and to enter the earth and to be the source of our hope and our salvation. It says this in Hebrews chapter two, verse nine. He says, but we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by grace the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That is the atonement. That is God's calling to you and I that we can choose to experience the life, death, and resurrection in our lives. That's what it means for us to follow him in baptism. That's what it means for us to obey him. There is an inherent authority that God has given us as human beings over his creation. And I think there's a stewardship component that goes along with that as well. And I don't understand this. I had someone interview me for a paper one time in California, and she asked me if I knew of any Christian environmentalists. I understand that there's a political connection to the term environmentalist but but she said something like if if God created it all then wouldn't it be important for Christians to take care of it to take it seriously how it's protected and I suppose I can relate to that at some level. If I gave Jim the keys to my car and then two weeks later he returns and it's got dents on the side, the, the gas tank's on low, that it's, um, you know, the, one of the tires is, is burst, that, that would be offensive to me, right? <laughs> that it would, it would communicate to me his lack of value of the thing that I bestowed or encouraged him with. Brothers and sisters, I think that it's important for us to accept that. God's creation and the provision that he's given us, the place that he's placed us in, it is something that demands us to take seriously. It demands a response. I have three things that I want to challenge you as we wrap up this sermon. And I want to to close with this word that we've been talking about, response, to to understand that that there's a component of us as individuals that, that have the privilege of seeing response be one of the greatest words in the Christian life. When I was at, at Cedarville, I decided that I was going to take a class my senior year at a school that was close by um, called Antioch University. It was a secular university and um, wanted to have the chance to share the gospel. And the, the first class I took was Ultimate Frisbee, which sounds awesome, right? Um, so I took Ultimate Frisbee. And then the second class was a world religion class. And my professor's name was Dr. Ramesh Patel, And he was an extremely smart man. Ramesh Patel had gotten his earned PhD in India studying Eastern philosophy and religion. And then he did not find, he would tell me after class one time that he did not find what he was looking for there. And so he came to the States and he got his doctorate in Western philosophy and religion. And um, he had asked me to write some unusual papers. He knew I was a Christ follower. He knew I was a student studying to be a pastor. And and, and one of the things that, that after class he asked me to talk to him about was... Was the idea in Christianity? He said, This is, Sean, this is a thing that I don't understand. And he articulated the gospel perfectly. He understood grace. He understood what it means to be saved by grace. He understood the atonement. And he, he kind of painted this picture with a scale. And he said, Every religion that I have studied intimately, and I would suggest that he's studied it as well as anyone has. That, that there's still some level of a scale, that there's a, a, a way of earning your salvation or your karma, that there's a, a sense of, I'm, I'm going to earn this. I'm going to live up to this, and I'm going to be receiving. He says, the thing that's so unique and different about Christianity is that there's a God who paid this price, the atonement for you. And the thing that I cannot understand, and I want you to help me to understand this as a Christian, is why would anyone be holy? Why would they do anything in their faith if it's already been done before them? And this word, the word that we've been talking about all day, this idea of response was the thing that was so stuck in my mind. That God has asked us, and I shared this with Ramesh, I pray that he comes to Christ and that he understands the truth of the gospel, but it's that we understand how big God is. We understand how much he has done for us, and then we can do nothing but to respond to it. That we are left to do nothing but to respond to him. Response is one of the most important words in Christianity. You remember the story of Joseph when Potiphar's wife is pursuing him sexually and he, he looks at her and, and his response back to her was not, how could I do such a wicked thing and potentially put my job at risk? How could I do such a wicked thing and, um, and have there be constant? No, he said, do you remember the words that he said? He said, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my God? That he was responding to the King of Kings. when King David was asked to purchase the threshing floor from Aruna the Jebusite at the end of Second Samuel, the, the words were so profound when Aruna says to him, "I'll give it to you, king." And David says, "I refuse to give to my God what costs me nothing." The, the response is palpable. It's obvious. I think for you and I, there's a component of this learning from King David earlier in his life where there's a giant in front of him. And his understanding of who his God is is significant enough that he's able to just look at it and say, My God is bigger than you. My situation is smaller than my God. I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it um, it is profound to me. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has written, risen, not only because I see it, but, but because by it, I see everything else. That is my story. I hope that that is your story, brothers and sisters. I, I think that there's an element of this where we get to stand back. Like like King David did when he says, give thanks and glorify the Lord, that he bookends this Psalm with the beginning and the end with the blessed be the name of the Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, this declaration of his goodness. And, And the last thing that I wanna challenge you in is I want to encourage you to hit pause in your life, to to hit the mute button, and to to ask yourself the question, what does God want me to hear from him? What does he want me to consider, to be mindful of? You remember the the lightning storm? You guys remember that story? Uh, you remember how I described that we rushed in. So I have a, another confession to make to you when the storm cleared, it was actually gorgeous. Blue skies, kind of like yesterday in Cleveland. And there was a rainbow. You can just picture it. We were just still shaking. But we go out, and we had expected that the boat had drifted out because we didn't even tie it up, really didn't. But but the boat was in the same place. And I'm embarrassed to say that what we found was that the anchor was down the entire time. So, so the entire experience that we had, there was a little a little bucket that was full of cement and titanium that was the anchor for that little aluminum But we dragged that thing the entire time in the midst of the storm we chose to ignore taking any consideration of something that could have made our trip home a little quicker a little easier i can't help but think in my own life if i'm transparent with you that there have absolutely been things in my life that i've had to learn through painful experience there's things that I've chosen to not take the time to consider, to hit the pause button, the mute button, just listen to God. And the consequences in my life have been painful. And so for you individually, I want to take this time now to, to be before the Lord. I'm going to ask you individually before the Lord to, to, um, to, to just ask him, Lord, is there anything in my life that you want me to hear from you right now? Lord, Lord, what does it look like for me to pause and to consider? What does it look like for me to be a person who not only is in awe of you, but responds to you? Father God, we love you and we thank you and praise you that, that I don't think that this beautiful Psalm was hard for David to write because it just was the natural overflow of a man who had encountered the living God that it was the natural overflow of someone who was so in tune with you that they, as a man after your own heart, were able to articulate truth in a way that is profound for us thousands of years later. And I ask of you for for Hope Church, for the individuals that sacrifice time in their schedule today to worship you because you're worth it, Um, Lord, that you would be convicting them, that you would be encouraging them, that you would be spurring them on to be people who do not just hold this truth for themselves, but they say, here I am, send me in an encounter with the living God that are willing to say, Lord, um, I, I hear you, I see you, and I want to respond to you. We love you. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.